This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today's guest is Michael the Lion, and he is an agricultural student at the top-ranked university in the Netherlands. He specializes in bringing heat recovery and load balancing services for greenhouses and immersion-cooled Bitcoin mining. What does all of this mean? It means you can do some really cool things with agriculture and Bitcoin. So let's dive in. All right, everyone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Michael on the line from the Netherlands, which is exciting. Michael, how's it going? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And of course, we have our lovely co-host as well, Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing today? Man, I am just I am just a peach today. I'm feeling wonderful. I'm, I'm glowing. Um, it's that time of year. The sun is out. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. The sun has been shining pretty heavily here in the Rocky Mountains. So, Michael, yeah, um, we connected on Twitter. You know, it seems like we have a lot of similar interests. Um, you know, you're, you're into the agricultural horticulture system in the Netherlands, you know, also into Bitcoin and have a pretty, you know, interesting journey, it seems, on, on diet as well from, from yeah. vegan to carnivore. So I'm curious, you know, why don't we dive in just a little bit about who you are and, and kind of your backstory mm-hmm. to give the listeners, uh, you know, some background on on why you're passionate about these things. So how did you kind of get into being interested and, and passionate about both agriculture, horticulture, and, and then Bitcoin, as well as, you know, then we can dive into, you know, some of the diet uh, learnings you've had over the years. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So <clears throat> when I was 19, I quit my studies in food technology and which is also kind of my background, passion for food and food nutrition. But I didn't like to be in the lab. So I took another course on education and I ended up in financial economics, which was much easier to do. And I completed it. But as the years went on in finance, I got this, you know, I they present you with really large models and they are so abstract and far from reality. I was like, if I continue in this, it's only going to get more abstract and more ripped apart from reality. So this was during COVID. And um, so I needed to switch up and I wanted to do something more practical. And my my dad has always been a, a potato seller. Basically, he imports and exports. And then I landed on doing a master's in agriculture. And so the, the, the advantage of this was also in my mind, like people always need food. So agriculture will always be relevant, even during a pandemic. It's an essential job. So I really like that. And then <laughs> the start of 2021, I got into Bitcoin or into cryptocurrency, I, I must say. And after that, I, like a year later, I got into my internship at Green Tech, And that is where the whole horticulture and Bitcoin 
you know, joined together as we use these Bitcoin miners in horticulture in greenhouses to heat these greenhouses. And uh, now, now we're in the current year. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's cool that you kind of had these passions. You, you know, left them. Maybe, you know, you pursued something in economics and then you kind of went back to this um, later on in life, which I think is an important track. You know, I've kind of almost had a similar path. It's it's a, a daunting decision for a lot of folks going into university, you know, deciding on, on what they want to do. But I think um, there's so many options to have later down the line. And, you know, if you don't corner your whole uh, corner yourself into something, you you actually have more flexibility than what you may think as you enter university. I think a lot of people overlook that. It's not necessarily that you have to do this for the rest of your life, but it can give you a good foundation and you don't have to be in just one industry. And I think that's what we're seeing more of now is, is kind of a lot of overlapping industries and, you know, the same mindset that you can uh, apply to create a bit of disruption in, in a lot of these industries, which it seems like is exactly what you're doing, which is really fascinating. So what exactly is horticulture? I guess, can you give us like a brief explanation of, of that? And, you know, how are you exactly, you know, marrying that with the idea of Bitcoin mining? Yeah, 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 yeah. So horticulture is basically the art of <clears throat> mastering the climate in a house. So a greenhouse is typically made from glass. It is isolated from all outside uh, influences. And so the things you control inside are the temperature, all the moisture, and uh, even the CO2 levels inside the greenhouse. And by doing this, you can get up to 20 times more yield per size of land, per acre, or whatever. So in the Netherlands, specifically, our greenhouse sector is also a large energy sector. They provide around 10% of all the electricity in the Netherlands. And they do this by uh, utilizing a CHP or a combined heat and power unit, which is basically a gas turbine where the electricity is used for lightning, lighting, and uh, excess, electric excess electricity is sold to the grid. Secondly, it's a combined heat and power unit. So the heat is imported into the greenhouse, which causes a, a good temperature for the plants and nice consistent. And the other thing is the CO2 that is emitted from the CHP is also injected into the greenhouse. The greenhouse has around three to four times higher CO2 levels than outside, which is nice for the plants. And Bitcoin mining comes into play because a greenhouse requires heat. But the, the, the profit from the CHP comes from selling to the grid. However, the, the grid prices fluctuate very much because we, in the Netherlands, we also have a very high share of solar and wind. So sometimes these prices are negative and the, the CHP is not financially efficient. So Bitcoin mining presents an additional energy asset, basically a global market for your electricity. And we also export 
the heat from these miners through immersion cooling techniques into the greenhouse. And yeah, that's basically it. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I'm I'm kind of newer to, to learning about this sort of stuff, so I'm kind of a novice when it comes to it. But I, I, I'd like you to try to explain, because especially for me, because I'm sort of just kind of taking all this in, sort of explain to me that maybe the importance of doing these things and like applying more electricity and sort of widening that market out compared to like the traditional systems we already have in place for that and sort of like where it can go in the future. Because I think a lot of people, like if I were to talk about this with my dad, he just simply would like go straight over his head. So I, I'd love to sort of know, like, why is it important to be doing things like this? And also, like, where can it go in the future? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So from a business side perspective, for the greenhouse operator, he is, by imp- implementing Bitcoin mining, he's basically hedging against two things. First of all is low electricity prices which keep getting lower in the Netherlands due to a higher share of renewable energy. And uh, they are also lowering the taxes on the electricity. Um, and the second is against high gas prices because this combined heat and power unit runs on gas. And if the gas prices uh, are higher than the electricity prices, that way you make a loss on your heating while the purpose is to make a profit. So adding Bitcoin mining also allows someone to import cheap electricity or uh, to shield against high gas prices in, uh, and use this electrical heating as the sole heating source for your plants. So... Um, Right now, we use it in combination with the two, CHP and Bitcoin mining. But in the future, we can also just use Bitcoin mining in order to heat these greenhouses. Also, what's important to know is that electrical heating is much, much, much more expensive than gas heating. It's about three times as high per megawatt hour. So from if you, if you look at it from a Bitcoin mining perspective, in this way, you can offset your Bitcoin mining costs through the sales of heat to a greenhouse, but you also offset your heating costs by mining Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, as we get more competitive kind of in the mining space in general, as difficulty has gone up, you know, computational hardware required has, uh, you know, gone way up. Um, it, you know, places like Europe, it's, it is really not, you know, lucrative to mine Bitcoin, especially in the past year because of electricity prices rising so much. So you almost have to become pretty creative in the use case. And this seems like such a perfect example. So you mentioned that, you know, you're using some of the excess heat, you know, Bitcoin miners generate like a very large amount of heat, uh, obviously. So, how much of that heat, you know, is uh, you know, that's going towards the horticulture, towards the greenhouse? How much is that kind of being offset um, in terms of the cooling required um, for what you guys need? Uh, I guess if that makes sense, this question. You know, how much is being utilized by the greenhouse to mitigate? You know, is it like thirty percent, forty percent less cooling required? Or we we use all the heat from our Bitcoin miners, so we use a a novel technique, it's called immersion cooling. 
And by doing this, you you don't use air cooling, you don't use fans. So it's so it also doesn't make noise. But what you do with immersion cooling, you just drop the naked hashboards in a non um, non electric fluid. It basically it doesn't short circuit when you drop it in, and by dropping it in fluid, your heat transfer is much higher. You can kind of compare it as if you were jumping in a pool on a hot day. You 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 get you instantly cool off, and then this hot fluid in which the hashboards lie, they they are they they are running through pipes and then through a heat exchanger, which is basically two pipes next to each other. In the one is the hot immersion fluid. And the other one is water. Um, through the heat exchanger, the heat is exchanged to both fluids. So on the one hand, cool water comes in, goes through the heat exchanger, hot water goes out and into the greenhouse. And for the immersion fluid in which the hashboards lie of the miners, cool fluid or hot fluid comes in and cool fluid goes back to the miners. And then the cycle is repeated. Yeah, that that's. I mean, that's great. Yeah, that I think that's incredible. I think this immersion cooling is becoming a lot more popular, even with you know big mining operations like Riot, for example, in in the U.S. It seems to be much more efficient, especially if you have somewhat of a decent scale. I, I'd imagine the startup cost is a little bit higher, but that's uh, you know that's the sort of innovation you know. Bitcoin brings to the table, I think, you know, it's going to continue to happen. And uh, I talk a lot about this uh, as well. So my my next question is, you know, kind of how did you think about this idea? Like, when did this come to fruition? What were some of, you know, the biggest hurdles to get started? And what has been the reception in the Netherlands around doing sort of this kind of very innovative idea, you know, including Bitcoin mining? as you know an input as part of this kind of more cohesive system i think the biggest obstacle is for sure getting the understanding of the growers of the greenhouse exploiters because you mentioned bitcoin and they are like that's going to zero so it's really hard to convince these growers of buying our products when it involves Bitcoin and especially the last year when it has been crashing down, they are like, well, will it go up again? Well, we think so, obviously, but you know, you got to convince them. They are the, they are the ones investing and yeah, it's, it definitely is, is high, higher in expenses in the capital costs with, uh, with the immersion cooling, but and also another advantage of immersion cooling is, by the way, that you can overclock very easily and reliably, which is also an asset when it comes to heating, because if you overclock, you also generate more heat. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. 
Interesting. Um, I mean, all this stuff is so fascinating to me. It's, it's, I think, I think, like you said, the most difficult part about, about discussing any of this stuff, even if we get into diet, which I think we'll kind of dive into a little bit about your, some of your story there, but, um, the most difficult part for any sort of paradigm shift is getting the sort of the average population or, um, the farmers or whoever you're talking to, to understand the potential benefit uh, versus the older system. So I would actually, I'm actually curious because this is like a conversation we've had on the podcast a couple of times, um, whether it's, uh, around food or, or whatever, how, like, how do we have these conversations more? Obviously these podcasts help to get information out there, but how do we get that conversation going with people that maybe don't understand these concepts as well as I do? And I'm definitely not on the high end of the spectrum of, understanding the full length of these things. But I understand the importance of having the discussions and the implications that they could have positively on pretty much everything we're trying to achieve. So it's like, how do we open the conversation and sort of like begin that dialogue and sort of help people evolve with these new ideas? You know what I mean? Because I'm sure that's been a struggle for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe what's like your pitch, you know, what yeah. do you, how do you talk to these, you know, growers and, and try and bring them on board? Because I think we've, We've seen a similar thing here in the U.S. with like ranchers and mm -hmm. trying to get them on board with ex accepting Bitcoin, for example. Basically, what what we've done up till now is focus on the money. We say we go in there. We say we have this product. It will make you a lot of money. Over the past four years, it has performed like X, and it's uh, the, the the payback period is two years, and that's how we convinced our first three projects. But just recently, uh, we started our marketing strategy and we're trying to be actual thought leaders in the sphere. So doing a lot of social media marketing, uh, posting our thoughts on LinkedIn, uh, which is our main platform for business. And that's basically how we're trying to, to influence the public and shift and shift the narrative and, and convince people this is a good idea. Because even uh, our good friend Satoshi said in 2010, the energy is not wasted if you use it to heat your house. And if, we're all, and, if, and if a grower should decide to go to, to lose the gas heating and go for sustainable electrical heating, then in my mind, the Bitcoin mining is superior over exploiting an e-boiler just because of the, uh, the extra revenue you get from the mining. You can even make profit of the heating. So that's how good it is. Whilst an e-boiler just destroys the electricity and exchanges it for, for heat. With Bitcoin mining, you effectively use your electricity twice, once for Bitcoin mining and second for heating. Yeah, I think when you kind of lay it out like that and I mean, Bitcoin is, is wild because it's like if you look at the track record, you know, it's obviously the best performing asset class by like a country mile in oh, yeah. the past. And any I mean, if you just take it over a three to four year time period, it's always in the green. Um, but nevertheless, you know, there's a lot of you know negative attention that kind of sways people the other direction, which is quite fascinating. So something you mentioned earlier that is really interesting and has been in the news a lot here recently um, in the United States is, uh, you know, how Bitcoin 
mining interacts with the grid? Is it positive? Is it negative? This large energy consumption footprint. So you mentioned that the Netherlands, you know, it's a very high percentage of renewables, you know, solar and wind. And inherently that creates a lot of instability because solar, you know, the sun only shines for a certain period of time. The wind only blows for a certain period of time. Right. So inherently creates stability, instability uh, to the grid. So is this something that's like, you know, an increasingly larger problem in the Netherlands? And, and do you see Bitcoin mining as, as kind of a solution to that? And has there been firms and other groups like, you know, Texas, for example, uh, here in the U.S. and a lot of these mining companies are doing, you know, initial studies and research with the Energy Reliability Council of Texas? Is is there any momentum like this going on in, in the Netherlands? Do you see this being a possibility or... Um, is it more so even heavier on the renewable train, kind of the ESG train over there? Okay, yeah, this is where the, the story gets even even better when it comes to load balancing. First of all, um, we have good grid, grid connections to Germany, France, the UK, and I think even Norway. So if we have an abundance of electricity, we can export it. But this usually means that we lose money on the electricity. However, um, by, by implementing these, these Bitcoin miners in a, on a greenhouse with the combined heat and power unit, you basically um, close the energy loop on the greenhouse because the CHP is providing power solely for the Bitcoin miners and the heat of the CHP and the Bitcoin miners goes into the greenhouse. Whilst before the CHP was delivering heat to the greenhouse and was forced to sell its electricity to the grid, which creates, which potentially creates instability. By integrating these two and you're closed off from the grid, you can stand by uh, for a load balancing service, for a load balancing service, for upward balancing. And upward balancing means delivering electricity to the grid. And for downward balancing, which means taking electricity from the grid. So um, when when a signal comes in that Tenet, our uh, transmission system operator, says we need downward balancing services, we shut down our CHP, and the grid provides all the electricity for the for the Bitcoin miners at a very cheap price. Uh, you even get paid to do this. And then you can just overclock. So you use two times as much electricity per miner. And in the other case, if it's not sunny or windy, um, tenants can send a signal to our, to a CHP. And then we turn off the Bitcoin miners. We fully load up the, the CHP and then the electricity gets provided to the grid. And we have about. 2,500 megawatts of power, elect electrical power from all the CHPs in, uh, in our, horticulture, in our horticulture sector. So whilst nationally Bitcoin mining hasn't gained that much traction in the load balancing here in Netherlands, we are uh, definitely providing our load balancing services with our Bitcoin miners. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's like so fantastic, right? Like that's what it's all about. And I think even this application to me is even more so flexible 
um, than say like, you know, a large Bitcoin miner. So I know um, something I'm trying to get more, I guess, just agnostic about is, is exactly how often, you know, these large flexible loads, aka Bitcoin miners are going online, offline or, or scaling down and scaling up. Um, because obviously, if you're just a business solely Bitcoin mining, you're not going to want to go on and off or, or down and up, you know, very, you're wanting to get, you're, you want to stay online as much as possible, right? Because any downtime is, is lost money. Um, but sometimes the incentives of the electricity prices are so high that it's actually, you know, not profitable to mine anymore. Um, but in your case, you actually have, you know, like this, you know, secondary option with the CHP to be, you know, scaling up or down on a moment's notice. And it seems to be even more flexible in this regard, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and you're again, utilizing all of this heat coming from the miners. And yeah, you mentioned kind of the interesting point and what's different as well from the U.S. is, you know, the Europe grid is, is very interconnected, um, but you, you're keeping, you're wanting to keep that electricity more local because you're saying, you know, transmitting um, electricity to England, UK or Norway or wherever, Germany, you know, you're losing a lot of that in transmission losses, power losses, right? So it's actually very inefficient to send electricity like these very long distances. And this is something as well that Bitcoin mining kind of helps uh, fix and improve is, is keeping it local. So we talk a lot about, you know, buying food local and all the all these types of things. You know, keeping your electricity and energy local is also a very important aspect of, uh, you know, just consuming uh, electricity. So something that I'm curious about, you mentioned 2,500 megawatts of, of horticulture. Is, is that across the whole country? And, you know, how how big, you know, tapping a little bit into the food systems, I think, how big is like greenhouse, uh, the greenhouse growing of food in the Netherlands? Is it like a very, it seems like a very large percentage of, of how people grow produce, for example, because here in the US, um, I don't even know, but it's it's got to be like less than 1% probably. Yeah, I've, it's, like, it's I've never heard of it being a thing here at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. I'm kind of just, you know, tapping into, you know, how popular is horticulture and, and the growing of, of food and greenhouses in the Netherlands? It seems like it's a pretty high percentage or a decent chunk of how farmers grow food. Um, is, is that correct? Um, I'm not is it sure gaining about popularity, you know, I'm, I'm just curious in general, because it seems like in the US, I've never really heard of many people doing it, you know, small mm -hmm. examples here and there. But yeah. I've, I've read before about how this is, you know, much more popular um, in Europe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I'm not sure what what the, the relative numbers are. But it's, it is very popular. And we're also not to boast or anything, but we, we are the best greenhouse exploiters in the world. And greenhouses here are popular because we don't have a lot of land. Netherlands is by far the most populated country uh, of Europe. And we are trying to use our land very sparingly. Um, so yeah, all our tomatoes are grown in greenhouses. Um, most of the, the, the bell peppers all the bell peppers as well. Only thing we use for regular agriculture are things like the potatoes, the onions, and other crops which are not that, which are resistant to 
to the cold. That's really important. We are the most densely populated country in the world, and we we use our land very sparingly. Only we are a, a, a large exporter of food, and we only employ around 2% of our population in agriculture. In other countries, this is much larger, and that is also the main difference with the U.S., um, in the U.S., you have a lot of spare land, so you can just get the sun for free, get the heat for free. You have all the land you want, but in the Netherlands, it's very scarce. So we're all also always looking for newer innovations in our food sector in order to improve the productivity per acre. Yeah, no, it's totally part of it. And all I was going to say was like, I think we can really take a lot of lessons from like what you guys are doing over there in sort of utilization of smaller space and, and sort of maximizing, not necessarily like maximizing output, obviously, but also sort of that focus on hyper-localization and focusing on that in the energy grid too. Because I feel like we do so many things and this kind of goes maybe broadly like around the world, but specifically in the US, I feel like especially in our agricultural sector, we do so many things inefficiently like we were talking about this in several podcasts but we just have things built on systems that are not only outdated but are just not energy efficient and so it's really interesting hearing about sort of the the marriage between bitcoin and horticultural because um it sounds like not only is it sort of a net positive for for like growing food and stuff like that but as far as an energy benefit you're sort of balancing those two acts together and i think that's just extremely smart and something that I think a lot of people should be like taking a harder look at because there are just so many things that, whether it's for exploitation of profit or whatever, just seems to be so inefficient. And then other things like Bitcoin are being thrown under the bus as like the bad guy somehow for for energy or whatever it is. And uh, nobody's just logically looking at it from a 30,000 foot view because it seems to be a lot of net positives, in my opinion. I see the net positives as well. And Probably when you do see greenhouse operators in North America, a Dutchie is probably involved in the, in the management of it. That's funny. Yeah, no, that's kind of exactly what I was 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 teeing you up for because it's so fascinating how each food system kind of has to be you know adaptive to what you have available um, in that country. So, so my question is, you know, is is horticulture greenhouses? You know, is this the future for, for growing, you know, all produce? Is there any downsides to doing this? Um, and, you know, what can be implemented, you know, to make it maybe more similar or be more nutrient dense, for example, um, compared to growing in the soil? Because here in the U.S., a big problem with produce and probably everywhere in the world um, we've exploited a lot of the, you know, soil that we use to grow crops. So a lot of the produce is actually less nutrient dense um, than, say, 50, 100 years ago. And this is a big issue um, because we've only gone for yield um, and really uh, destroy the quality of our soil through industrial farming practices. So is this something that can be, you know, implemented or reversed, uh, say, for example, or you know, done in horticulture to where we can get back to a more nutrient dense uh, raising of, of produce and crops. I, I think that there, there lies a bright future ahead for greenhouses, mainly because of the things I already said, that the land is very scarce. 
the main disadvantage is obviously that it's very energy intensive. So um, during our energy crisis, a lot of greenhouse exploiters didn't even start with growing because um, they had bought gas and electricity at a low price in the past for the future. And they just sold their gas positions and electricity positions to the market because it was more profitable than growing tomatoes. Um, furthermore, we in the Netherlands, we have the one of the most fertile soils, uh, at least in Europe. Um, we, we lay next to the sea and we even um, like poured a lot of ground or sand into the sea and we created our own land it's called Flevoland which is where I'm from and that's a, a large agricultural hub for um, for just regular crop growing on land and we do it very efficiently efficiently with mechanization fertilizers um, but we don't overdo it with the fertilizers because we have a lot of strict regulations regarding that and yeah, I, I, I see a future for greenhouses. Uh, vertical farming is also more upcoming in the Netherlands, but that is even more energy intensive. So, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, I mean, and there's also like, it's, speaking of like energy output and all the stuff, there's this huge discussion on like slashing emissions over in the, I mean, everywhere really, but in the Netherlands, especially with nitrogen, they're trying to slash half of emissions by 2030 and stuff like that. I kind of love your opinion mm -hmm. on on the nitrogen crisis and sort of, what what things um, are applicable with what you are doing to sort of uh, maybe not necessarily aid in that, but just sort of your position on it? Because I feel like there's a lot of different angles to tackle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the nitrogen crisis is mostly aimed at our livestock production, which is fairly large. And what is happening is is back in the early 2000s, our municipalities uh, were given the order to uh, appoint protected nature areas, which are typical Dutch. And because these municipalities thought they would receive subsidy in the Netherlands, basically every piece of nature was regarded as this Nature 2000 protected area. Fast forward to now, we have this nitrogen crisis. That's a nice framing for making it more urgent than it is because, you know, when I walk outside, I have no problems with the nitrogen in the air, but they call it the nitrogen crisis for some political framing. What happened is uh, the, the politicians said, well, we need to go back to or we need to restore the nature in the Netherlands. And, well, the funny thing about this is that we have no nature in the Netherlands. All of it is man-made, so it's a political choice to 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 call this or to have a problem with this nitrogen crisis. And what happened for most of these nature areas, they looked at pictures or drawings from the 1700s and the night uh, from the 1700s until the 1900s. And they concluded, well, there were a lot of dunes and a lot of like meadow, and now we have trees. So uh, we actually have more biodiversity in our nature than we had back then. 
but that is a problem. We need to go back to the classical nature of the 1700s, which are like like sand areas of sand and no vegetation at all. And the the leakage of nitrogen is obviously beneficial for plants because they like nitrogen. And as a consequence, to reduce the nitrogen emissions, which come from the cows the, who who excrete the nitrogen. And that is why they are trying to expropriate our farmers. Um, I'm not sure what the actual reason is, but I have a hard time believing it. It is uh, purely meant for nature. Yeah, and the, the public outcry has been, you know, pretty well documented, well, you know, covered, or at least on our end in our little bubble over here. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like there's been a substantial pushback on, on these measures, I think, right? The, the Farmers Party, or I don't know exactly what it's called, has mm-hmm. done very well in the recent elections. So is this... You know, do you say as well that the majority, you know, mindset is is kind of against a lot of these measures? And um, yeah, how do you think this will kind of play out in the next few years? Ooh, I'm not sure about how it will play out. But what what is uh, good to mention is that uh, we Dutch, we are not uh, we are not like the French. We don't like to protest. So when it does happen. You know, it, it's actually really serious. It doesn't happen just like that. It's uh, we can take a lot of shit from from politics, but when you trying to expropriate our farmers um, of the best agricultural country of the world, then we take a problem. And so these these farmers went to our political hearts on their big machines, and the police were like, oh. We can't stop this. They are way too powerful. And that's when the, the media started hitting them. And now the because the nitrogen crisis does not only involve the only involve the farmers, but it's also impacting our um, our ability to build houses. Because these politicians say, well, we are at the nitrogen limit building a house and eh? we have a housing shortage. Building a house uh, emits nitrogen. We first need to buy out a farmer, and then we can build an apartment. So these farmers are, are also getting blamed for our housing shortage, which is obviously false, because it's a political decision. Because if you go over the border to Germany, their nitrogen limits are th- a thousand times as high. There was even this researcher who said... Um, who, who commented on the on the nitrogen limit, and he said, "Well, if you just let one dog take a dump on a hectare of land, you already exceed the nitrogen limit. So it's it's that strict." And um, regarding our elections, this was a historic win for any political party. Uh, two years ago, they came as a new party into our um into our i think it's this no it's not the senate but anyway the the people who make the laws and and control the or check the government and they got 
one seat out of 150. And then two years later, um, the Senate is chosen, which approves bills. And they were, and this, and the, the Senate is divided into our provinces. So uh, Flevoland gets X amount of seats and uh, Overijssel gets uh, X amount of seats. And they were the largest in every province um, there is, all 12 provinces. And no other political party has ever managed to do that. So it's an historic win. Yeah, that's it's been so interesting to follow this. And I, I see so many parallels with also, you know, what we've experienced here. Just just a comment is uh, with COVID, right? It's like, and I want to dive into kind of how your mindset has evolved around, you know, going against centralized corporations and entities like this, because it's basically like our government, you know, they inch forward, right, for more control year on year. And over decades, you know, this this turns into quite a big step, right? But you don't really notice it. Society is a bit lackadaisical and, you know, realizing what's happening as they give up their freedoms. But what I've seen here with, with both COVID um, and the lockdowns, the vaccine mandates and the passports, you know, that was a large step that, you know, was too uncomfortable for so many people. And that resulted in a lot of pushback which is good. And it woke a lot of people up. So it seems like this kind of, you know, whole situation here with the nitrogen crisis in the Netherlands is also the same thing. Cause you're saying, you know, we're not, you know, we're not like the French. We don't like the protest, which is hilarious. And um, it's, it's serious. It's like, you know what, at what point does a society in whatever country it is reach that tipping point where they're saying, no, like we're, we're not dealing with this. This is ridiculous. Um, and then they push back. And I think this is an important piece to know because I think this is going to keep unfolding around the world, especially in the Western world, um, to where, you know, the society has more power than people think, but it has to reach that threshold to where they're saying, fuck no, this is absolutely ridiculous. We are not dealing with this sort of government intervention in our society in the way, you know, we run our daily lives especially in something that's so important as growing food and the raising, you know, of livestock and, and things like, and you're comparing it to other countries, you know, the levels of nitrogen, it's just outrageous and it makes no sense. So it's, it's quite clear. It's a motive. The motive is, is purely for control and, um, you know, just more centralized policies. So it's, it's really fascinating. I wanted to highlight that because I think that's kind of a theme here that we see in, you know, the waking up of society is, is really important um, as we try and get back to empowering individuals. And I just wanted to add to that, too, because I think there's this misconception in sort of the general pop, especially here, but in, over there where people are trying to shut down farmers and like same things happening here, we're trying to shut down farmers. And we've interviewed, uh, we're going to be interviewing more uh, regenerative farmer, Mitch in particular, who we, we talked about, like, how do we use the land for the highest efficiency? How do we use the land to replenish the soil and all these ecosystems interacting together? And there's just such a separation now from people and nature that we just don't understand how all these things are interconnected. And really, we shouldn't be listening to, and I think more people, especially after 2020, are much more awakened to this idea and questioning. And I think that's sort of been building over the last since even 2000, like that, I've seen it grow is in my like local communities of of questioning polit political uh, rhetoric and stuff like that. But is it does it really make common sense to listen to 
a politician who's never worked on the land or any of these things talk about what's good and what's bad with using the land for the environment? Or should we be listening to the farmer who's on the land using it every single day and listening to their views on what needs to be done to have a more vibrant use of that land? And to me, the answer is obvious. And I think if you really think about it on a very common sense level, that that's the obvious answer. But yeah, it's just, uh, I, I think it's really good as far as the amount of information that is now out there and people questioning things. I think that's, that's huge. And I think that'll only continue as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, what you said about the politicians making these decisions, it uh, makes me think of uh, a quote of uh, Eisenhower who said, um, farming looks damn easy when your plow is a pen and you're a thousand miles away from the cornfield. And that's also what's happening here because what we saw in COVID, but also this nitrogen crisis, our politicians um, just blindly follow scientific models, which were made by people they also hire. And so we've, we've landed in this technocratic form of, of ruling where the politicians say, well, we follow the science. And so we don't have any what should I say? We, 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 we don't take accountability for our decision because we're just doing what the science says. So we have this task force, the nitrogen task force, who, who, who finds the top 10 polluters and we have to buy them out. And yeah, that's a nice way of removing accountability from politics and laying it with someone else. And that's what I see happening here in the Netherlands. Yeah, I think it's it's the perfect way to think about it. But to me, it's, you know, how do you how do you continue that fight? And how do you, you know, get more people realizing that they have more power than they actually, you know, know they do. So I, I think you have a society that's that's pretty ripe for the orange pilling, I, I would say, you know, something we've seen here, you know, we're trying to do here is, you know, these, these ranchers, these the folks who are actually putting in the hard work that make you know our society possible to run um, and feeding the country, mm-hmm. feeding the world, you know they these people are typically very skeptical of government. But here in the U.S., they're so reliant on them. So many farmers and ranchers, they're just programmed by what the USDA does. You know whether it's because they're just growing monocrop. Um, products and they're getting, you know, insurance, crop insurance and, and checks um, to guarantee their income. And they don't want to change because the average age is so high. But in general, a lot of these ranchers are, are realizing that in order to stay afloat, they have to innovate to some degree. And, you know, going direct to consumer, being more regenerative by nature, um, all these types of things. And, and then their mindset, to me, is really aligned with you know, what Bitcoin can provide. And that's why we're here trying to, you know, grow this, this circular economy and exchanging value for value. So it'd be fascinating to, to see, you know, if, if that's possible over there, because like I said, clearly you have a lot of folks that are, you know, realizing that less government is more. And, you know, if they have this education that Bitcoin can empower that even further at the individual level, and then you have something that's kind of, you know, outside of the whole 
European financial system, which is a conversation in and of its own. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing the slow collapse of, of a lot of these, you know, more centralized unions, um, especially as the, the, you know, the U.S. dollar and the whole Western uh, financial system is, is kind of on its last limb here, perhaps. Um, but yeah, that's that's something we're trying to grow. And I'm curious if, if you agree with that. I'm, I'm assuming you do. And it's like, you know, can we start getting horticulture growers and getting this Bitcoin circular economy going? I think we have a nice fruitful soil for orange filling um, here in the Netherlands, but in the European Union, we we always have this with regard to the euro. We have this north versus south debate because the the south wants high inflation in order to uh, dilute their debts, and that way they can also stay competitive on the on the world markets. But in Northern Europe, we like low inflation uh, with high interest because we are very productive with our labor hours. Just like Brexit, we are also talking about Nexit and that we see the euro as a, a hindrance, a hindrance uh, in, our, in our national policy and, and how we can, you know, contain our personal wealth. Um, and yeah, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not catching up here because we have like, we have one of the best banking systems in the world. So as Alex Gladstein would say, we, we suffer from financial privilege. And I also think the initial marketing of Bitcoin has been, has been wrong because it has been marketed as money. And people here just say, well, Bitcoin is useless, is useless because you can't buy anything with it. It's money, right? Why can't I buy anything with it? And so we need to need to reframe that Bitcoin isn't money, but it's good technology. It's an asset. It's like it's. I like the way I like to describe it. It's digital gold. It's gold without weight. You can send it across the ocean for a penny, and you can store it in your head. And that that's that's basically the, the the great advantage of of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think the greatest advantage is that it it's more than one thing, right? So it's like depending on you know in in mm-hmm. Venezuela it's yeah. money, in Argentina, in Nigeria it's money, in mm-hmm. the United States, in the Netherlands, in you know Switzerland, it's not it's not money really, not right now, and I don't think you can yeah like you're saying you shouldn't lead with that. Um, but that's so fascinating. I think about it all the time because you're talking about the North versus South in Europe. And yeah, to me, it makes no sense to have like, I mean, just the cultures, right? you like, you look at a Spain, Italy, Greece, like mm-hmm. they, they obviously they, they don't work as hard. They have much more, you know, siestas and, and things just ingrained into their society, which is okay because, you know, that's just how their culture is. And mm-hmm. they have a lot of great products and, and things like that. Um, and tourism, it's, you know, very heavy in, in tourism, right? So it's just different, right? And you can't just lump everything together with, you know, highly productive, more efficient societies like Germany, Netherlands. Uh, and that's kind of why I see this just as well not working out. So I, I'm really curious to see how, how it unfolds. But at the end of the day, it just you're forcing, you know, different cultures and, and different economies to try and mesh together. And mm-hmm. it just doesn't it it doesn't work out. But 
I really like, you know, how, how you've highlighted that in terms of, you know, what Bitcoin is. And to me, that was just like an epiphany to the fact that, you know, that's another reason Bitcoin is so valuable is because it's so dynamic. Yeah, you know, it can it can mesh and it can be of value for different reasons to different people and in, in different places. That's that's very true. And so in these countries where they 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 lack the financial privilege that we have, it is emerging as money. And that's also why the, the developing countries are the most popular Bitcoin countries in the world right now. Also, this this cultural thing, because our European Union probably looks a lot at the United States and is thinking, well, if it works there, it can work here. But uh, you probably have more sympathy for someone for someone from Washington State, Florida or California or whatever than I have for a Greek or a Spaniard or a, a Slovenian or whatever, you know, because we 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 don't want to pay for the Greeks and the Greeks don't want to pay for us. And, you know, that's that misaligns in the in the, in the policy. Yeah, there is like some of that, like the, the difference, the cultural difference there. There's a little bit of that here. But like, at, I mean, we all know kind of the, the story of America or whatever. But um, mm -hmm. like we, we started as like the union, union broke. There's definitely like state differences that I think are pretty big. And you can kind of see the divides growing and sort of the, especially with like these sort of uh, ideas about more government control versus less government control. I go to California like once a month for work and I see it definitely a completely different like cultural ideology on how they think the world should work compared to here in Utah. And um, there's definitely, but it is a larger divide over there where you have many, 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 many more years of, of different cultural practices and, and, and stuff like that, that expand. And I hear that talk all the time when I visit family in, in the UK um, they'll travel to Greece and they hear all this stuff. And it's definitely a lot of different. And even even with the UK and the EU, like they never adopted the the euro and stuff like that. So like there's there's sort of like this independence as well. So on some levels, I think because there's a global nature with with the way the economies are now, there's always going to be some like connectivity, but there's always going to be, I think, separation. I feel like there's like this idealistic world that everyone that's higher up in, in policy wants to see. Um, where mm -hmm. everyone's like extra connected, but I just don't think it's possible. And especially like the way they're trying to push people now, even heavier after 2020, it's just like, it's actually, I think making it more difficult for them, which in my opinion is good to achieve that, that goal. You know what I mean? I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And I'm curious as well as to kind of wrap up, you know, something we talked about is that you, you've also gone, you know, you've changed, you know, your, your diet quite a bit. So mm -hmm. obviously something I'm, Ryan and I, you know, talk about a lot is, is health, nutrition. And, you know, I write about it's like the intersection between, you know, beef and Bitcoin. And in general, it's a, it's a fascinating overlap, right? There's a lot of carnivores now in, in the Bitcoin space. Um, I think it's for the same, you know, mindset and principle of, you know, taking ownership of your life. Um, is that kind of how you saw it? And, and how did you go down this rabbit hole and, what exactly, you know, have you adjusted in, in this facet of your life? Yeah, so people taking ownership of their life, especially Bitcoiners, is because now they have a long time horizon, you know. They they are not in, in, in the despair anymore of my dollar is losing value every year. And 
houses keep getting more expensive and my wages stay flat because they're sticky. So that's really fascinating to see in, in, the, in the Bitcoin space that, that people are also very much focused on health because of this long time horizon. They're like, okay, well, my Bitcoin is going to last forever. It's going to go up forever. So I should take care of myself so I can, you know, pick, pick the fruits of, 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 of my Bitcoin journey. And for me personally, with my diet, we have to go back to what we, well, what you guys would call high school. I was 18 and I had to do like my last final project and everyone has to do this. And my last final project, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So, um, during my orientation, I watched Cowspiracy and, um, I basically concluded, well, I think veganism is the way it's the most ethical way to eat. And it's probably healthier than what we do now because cholesterol is bad for you. And if you eat meat, you're, you're probably going to die of a heart attack. And I stick to it for one to two years, a vegan. But then I became a student. And <laughs> I remember so clearly, Domino's had like these, uh, these, these days where you can get a pizza for three euros. And so, well, I got me some pizza because I like pizza. And that was basically the first downfall of my vegan journey. Then I went to vegetarian. And um, that was also a transition. And then I basically went to a standard Dutch diet, not thinking about the macros, but just eating what I like. And I think, well, broccoli is healthy, so I'll eat some broccoli sometimes and have a, have a hamburger with it. And um, then I, when I was training for my first boxing match, I really got into to fasting. And uh, the the fasting really made me feel good because um, when I'm hungry, I'm also more eager to do things. Like this 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 primal activation of well, you're hungry, you're hungry, you better go and do something about it. And wasn't obviously that the main goal then was to get some food, but you know just be productive and. I lost a lot of weight. I went from, I think, 77 to 70 kilograms. So that is about 16 pounds or something of weight loss. And um, yeah, I was basically in, in, in the best shape of my life. And I continued this for a long time, doing one-day fasts, two-day fasts, even three-day fasts. And even one time, I did a one-week fast only only drinking salt and coffee black coffee and what amazing was is that i was able during the seven day fast i was able to keep working i and it wasn't like a light job i worked at a bar so it was a lot of standing and partying and yeah that that was really special because fasting comes with a lot of benefits and the main benefits for me was that it increases human growth hormone for a short time. Obviously, you get very fast into a state of ketosis, which, make, which makes you burn fat. And um, because your body is basically starving, it tries to recycle all the death 
cells or useless cells and basically eats this, which is, is, uh, is a process called autophagy. So you're also making your body way more efficient with its energy if you, if you start practicing fasting. Then I had my boxing match. I went back to the standard Dutch diet. And then I got into Bitcoin. And I had this crazy friend who lived with me. And on one day he was like, you got to eat raw liver, man. It's nature's vitamin pill. And at first I was like, you're talking crazy. And he showed me this guy and like, well, oh, he's eating it. And look, look how good he is. And he has this, and he has this videos of the epitome of malnourishment where he shows malnourished vegans. And well, I got down, down that rabbit hole and the carnivore diet convinced me for two reasons. The first one is, um, that when when you look at a forest or the like the plants if if and the edible plants if you look at all the plants only only five percent which is a large estimate but it's probably closer to one percent of all the plants is edible the rest is non-digestible or poisonous so what makes me think rationally that this one to 5% of plants that I find in the supermarket are healthy for me. And then in my masters of agriculture, I learned about uh, bottom up pesticides, which basically mean that the, that the plants, they, they, they put poison, a little bit of poison in their leaves in order to repel the insects from eating it. And the second thing was um, the first Europeans came to Europe around 12,000 years ago, but the agricultural revolution was 10,000 years ago. So in this 2,000 years, what would they eat in the winter when all the, all the plants are dead? It's only meat. So that last reason basically convinced me like, you can live on only meat. Is it optimal? I don't know. And, um, I'm not a pure carnivore. I'm more like animal-based diet because uh, when talking about these bottom-up pesticides again, there are clearly parts of plants that are meant to be eaten. And these are the fruits, which is why apples are sweet, bananas are sweet, grapes are sweet, because the tactic of these fruits is that we eat them or an animal eats them, and then the the seed passes through the body and when you excrete it you know you poop it out the the seed lies in a pile of manure which is like a which is a good soil for uh, eventually growing and that's basically my uh, my dietary path yeah, I mean, me and Tristan have pretty similar stories as far as like discovering animal-based diets and stuff like that. And actually, it's really interesting because you mentioned sort of like you had those ethical reasons and and health reasons for going uh, vegan. I think that's a pretty common story. I have a really close friend that actually um, had an eating disorder and then tried to recover his eating disorder with veganism, and it completely flubbed. Like he had a he had about a good two years, and then he started having issues with his collagen and like joint health and all these things because you need all these bioavailable 
amino acids that just aren't as readily available in plants. And like you mentioned, like, I mean, there's obviously like um, plant toxins, there's all the herbicides and the pesticides that we put on the plants. And there's a lot of these, these issues not to throw, not to throw all plants under the bus per se, but, but there's definitely this sort of narrative that goes around that I think can make sense in the way that our culture is now so removed from nature and our past and being connected with the earth. And I think what's amazing is that everyone I've met, including you, who's gone through this evolution of thought and sort of landed on that animal-based diet, talks about Bitcoin and all this stuff is that it sort of is sort of this regaining of our innate intelligence. Like our bodies know what it needs. Mm -hmm. And if we just listen to it, we'll know what to eat. And that includes animal foods a hundred percent of the time. And so it's really just, it goes back to common sense. And like, at the end of the day, part of the message we're trying to achieve with this show is, is just like, you need to listen to your own innate intelligence. It's there. It's telling you what direction to take is giving you the, the clues, but we're so tuned out from all the noise and we're so stressed out. We live these busy lives that don't make any sense. And a lot of us aren't even necessarily being productive. Like you said, we had a lot of discussion about productivity and uh, the Bitcoin usage and, and the horticulture and stuff like that is we just, we're not productive. We work more than ever, especially here in the U.S. And it's just, it's all backwards. And so I think a lot of the stuff we talked about today is sort of how do we, how are we resetting these things in our mind and in our environment around us? And sort of the last question I'd like to ask you too is someone out there, we always ask is, is how can somebody and how have you done this as well? But what are some steps that people can take to sort of begin to decentralize themselves and sort of begin to take that orange pill and uh, open themselves up to these new broader horizons that at the end of the day aren't, I mean, there's complexities within them, but a lot of it goes back to pure logic, in my opinion, you know? Mm -hmm. I say you know a lot. I gotta catch that. Thank you. Thank you. I think the first, and it's the biggest step, is taking complete accountability for everything that happens in your life. I think that because people who are caught up in politics, for example, they think, well, if Joe Biden gets into into office this time, he will make everyone's life better. But you have to do it yourself. If we talk about health, wealth, and relationships, basically the, the three pillars of of happiness or building your life, you're responsible for your own health. You are in charge of everything that goes into your mouth. You are in charge of your own exercise. You don't need a gym membership to be fit. You can just go outside and go for a run, do some push-ups, find a tree, do some pull-ups. You can get into amazing and healthy shape. Um, For your wealth, I think most people are stuck on trying to invest in real estate and stocks. My main problem is that these can be very easily expropriated or diluted. I think getting onto the the Bitcoin train is probably the best thing you can do for your your wealth. It cannot be censored, cannot be taken away from you. uh, And it's very like liquid and mobile. So if the Netherlands has a crackdown on Bitcoin and saying it's banned, Okay, I'll just take it and go over the over the border. And yeah, and if you look at the last pillar relationships, you you are the one who is in control. Uh, if you if you want to make more, you got to shake more. So shake as many hands as possible. 
And so the, my main tip is extreme ownership of your own life, extreme accountability. Everything that happens to you, even if it looks like bad luck, it is your own fault. I think that's the hey, main thing. I couldn't have said it better than myself. I think that's that's a huge lesson that I've had to learn. I think everyone that gets into this journey at all learns that. But thanks for being here, Michael. We'll have to continue the conversation again. Tell people where they can find you and uh, your work, any of that stuff. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, active on Twitter at Michael the Lion. Um, you can add me on LinkedIn if you want to talk business about Bitcoin mining in horticulture. It is Michael the Leo, which is the lion in Dutch. And yeah, those are my socials. Love it. I appreciate it. Thanks for everyone joining and we'll see you in the next one. Yes. Thank you very much.